Hi, I'm Eden. And I'm Nicole. Welcome to Roadside, Roadside Horror, Horror Show. Show. We are in North Dakota again this week. This is North Dakota Part 2. Part dos. Part do. I've said it once, but I'll say it before because it's been enough time now that has passed. Get your dose of the dose. <laughs> Get your dose of the dose. I love it. Love it. <laughs> So since we're on part two, I have some weird laws for you and then a truly twisty turny true crime story, hopefully. Awesome. And I have a really scary place to tell you about then too. Yes. All right. Without further ado, let me tell you about some of the weird ass laws in North Dakota. This one I thought was super interesting. Due to a state law you probably won't find a CVS, Rite Aid, or Walgreens anywhere within the state of North Dakota. The state laws require pharmacies to be owned by local pharmacists, meaning that national chains can't actually operate pharmacies there. Um, Okay, that's kind of interesting because I do like mom and pop type stores, so. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting example of, you know, the state actually passing a law to protect mom and pop stores. That's true. I guess some of these larger pharmacy chains did attempt to have the law changed in 2014, but they failed. Ooh. All right. Good job, North Dakota. Looking out for the little guy. Yeah. The next law I thought was kind of funny. And I'm not sure why this would be. Maybe because North Dakota doesn't have as many cities as other states. But in North Dakota, if you have a problem with pigeons, you need permission to exterminate one. According to state law, quote, no person, firm, or corporation shall exterminate pigeons or other harmful wild birds without first having obtained a permit from the Fargo Health Department. Okay, other harmful birds. So they're harmful. They could cause you bodily harm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This bird is killing me. Well, you can't kill it until you get the okay from us. You have to firmly request the bird stop trying to kill you. Yes, let it peck you to death, and then we'll see. <laughs> oh, goodness. I keep thinking of that scene from the birds where Tippy Hedren has like the birds like sewn to her costume and they're like, like they throw live birds on her and they like, almost yes. pick her eyes out. I'm like, well, at least she wasn't in North Dakota and she could bat those birds away. That is very, very true. <laughs> and yes, I've seen I've seen enough of, of the good clips to kind of know what's going on. And like I said, I read the book because I had a Daphne du Maurier thing for a while after reading mm-hmm. Rebecca. So hmm. I didn't know she wrote the birds. Yep, she wrote that. She wrote a lot of, uh, like, I think there are like a few others that she wrote that Hitchcock also got his hands on, but I'm not mm-hmm. entirely sure. That's cool. All right. Now that we've had our fill of wildlife, let's move on to something more appealing, like beer and pretzels. I love beer and Ooh, pretzels. Right? Beer and pretzels sound good. Well, in North Dakota, it's illegal to serve beer and pretzels together in a bar or a restaurant. Fuck you, North Dakota. <laughs> That is not fair. And those are fighting words. <laughs> I know. My question is like, do you have to choose one or the other? It's like, I love a pretzel. Then it's like, I guess I'll have a glass of wine with that instead of a beer. Yeah, right. Or like, <laughs> you know, I'll have a shot of whiskey instead. Like, you know, can you get around it that way? Maybe. I don't know. I think it's just a shame. I feel like Bavarian pretzels and beer are like, like you know. So good. Yeah, they're so good together. Anyway. Hell, half the time you dip Bavarian pretzels in beer cheese. So Exactly, exactly. Maybe that's how they get around it. You have to like cheese up your beer. That sounds gross. I'll throw a slice of provolone in there. We'll be good. <laughs> uh, what else is weird about North Dakota? Well, they have made it illegal to lay down 
or lie down to lie down and fall asleep with your shoes on. Uh, we've seen that one before somewhere. Uh, did we? It sounded a little familiar, but I couldn't remember if it was like laying down, like passing out in the street, or if it was like something about your shoes being on. I always it was forget. something about your shoes being on, but it could have been added to the refrigerator law. Mm, okay. Where you can't fall asleep in your refrigerator with your shoes on or something. I don't know. I could just mm-hmm. be confusing them all now. Pennsylvania has the refrigerator law too. That's so weird. Like who does that? I know. Why? Like who's going to sleep in the refrigerator first of all? I, I don't. I don't get it. Mm-mm. Maybe the falling asleep in public with your shoes on thing is illegal because then they are nine times out of ten you're probably drunk. Yeah, probably. So. Because like I was thinking about it. I'm like even if like you're camping or something, you usually take your shoes off. Although yeah. this could also be like another way to like harass unhoused people too who like, you know. That's have- true. Nowhere else to lay down and fall asleep. Well, to the homeless population of North Dakota, just take your shoes off before you go to sleep. You'll be fine. As long as you don't mind frostbiting your toesies. Yes, that is true. Or they also might get stolen. So that kind of sucks. But yes. All right. And now one final law that I think falls into this category of laws that we've seen as we've traveled. And that category is it was that one guy that one time, but now we have to have a law about it. Oh, okay. Gotcha. (laughs) In North Dakota, it's illegal to keep an elk in a sandbox in your backyard. Whoa. Do you want to unpack that, Eden, or should I? (laughs) Uh, Please do, because I want to know how this became a law. And dear God. Okay. Yeah, just go. (laughs) So like part of me is like, okay, you can keep an elk as a pet, but why in a sandbox? Why? You could just put him in a pen like other, other animals. I mean- Sure, you could be a backyard farmer, but a sandbox? Like, what? Why? Yeah, that's that's weird. Yeah, very weird. That's like the whole, like, you can't let a horse sleep in a public type law. I'm like, okay, cool. I'm not planning on doing that, but okay. Thanks for reminding me. Yeah, okay. So y- these were pretty weird so far. Yeah, they're weird. They're, I feel like they're uniquely North Dakotian. Yeah, definitely North Dakota. Weird. Okay. You know what? You're you're going to be one of those states um, on our list of the weirdest facts that we've had because some of those are real fucked up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I agree. So are you ready to dive into some true crime? I absolutely am. I've been waiting for this since you canceled last night. <laughs> well, here we go. Your Monday morning true crime. Today, we're heading back to Minot. Because to quote you, Eden, why not, my not? Why not, my not? Although now this might be the new town from hell. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> so just as a reminder for you roadsters out there, it's North Dakota's fourth largest city. It's located in the north central region of the state. It's nicknamed the Magic City due to its remarkable population growth spurts that have happened throughout its history. Minot's economy is primarily driven by the Minot Air Force Base. It's the largest employer in the city. And the economy has also been spurred on by the increase in oil drilling and fracking that also occurs in and around Minot. Well, frack that. (laughs) And it was an assignment at the Air Force Base that brought the central people in our story to Minot in June of 2010. Unfracking believable. Okay, Unfracking. <laughs> Please don't. Please continue. <laughs> <laughs> and they were newlyweds Richie and Angela Wilder. Now, they had moved from Alabama. 
And this move from Alabama took them away from their friends and family, but it did provide Richie with an important first step in his career with the Air Force. Unfortunately, no one knew that this move to North Dakota would also be the first step on a path to tragedy and murder for the Wilders. Okay, so like every good horror movie opening. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, Richie Wilder and Angela Small were both from Phoenix City, Alabama, which is a city that's located on the Alabama-Georgia state line. It's about 10 miles from Fort Benning. Given its close proximity to Fort Benning, a lot of military service members lived there, and that included Angela's parents. Both her family and Richie Wilder were also active in the local Mormon church. But growing up, the two really didn't socialize all that much. Now, throughout most of her teen years, Angela was involved with with the other boy, Christopher Jackson, who, as I have been doing my research, is kind of universally described as like tall and burly and like dark haired. Um, Yeah, he fits that description after seeing some footage of him. Anyway, I digress. Angela and Christopher had this typical on-again, off-again relationship that you have in your teens. You know how it is. One week they're together, one week they're broken up. You should have seen my sister's notebook in high school. (laughs) Um, It had different guys' names on it all over the place, and then like a line would be drawn through them and a new guy's name would appear. Yeah. (laughs) Well, in Angela's case, it would pretty much be like Angela plus Christopher scratched out, and then a couple weeks later, Christopher plus Angela. Oh, and, my God. Okay. So just back and forth, the same guy. Yeah, back and forth, the same guy. And the reason that that their relationship kind of was off and on again is because Angela perceived that Christopher really had a lack of motivation to do well in school, and he really didn't plan for the future. And for her, she had these big dreams. Like, she wanted to go to college and become a doctor and raise a really big family. And that's what she was focused on through all of high school. Uh, she wanted to be a doctor because she wanted to help people. And she worked really hard in high school to secure an army scholarship to study medicine at the University of Southern Alabama. So she's looking ahead to her bright future. And finally, when she heads off to college, she breaks up with Christopher for good. However, Angela meets a new guy in college. And within a couple months of dating him, she finds out she's pregnant. Now, this is during her freshman year, and the result of her pregnancy and the decision to drop out of school to marry this new boyfriend caused her to lose her scholarship. Oh. Now she is 19 and pregnant and married to this boy from upstate New York. His father also happened to be a Baptist preacher, and they decided to move to New York to be around his family for the birth of the baby. So they got married. In 2004, and Angela was very pregnant at the wedding. A short while later, she gave birth to a daughter. And then, unfortunately, the marriage started to deteriorate. They were both young. They were new parents. There was a lot of speculation that her husband was unfaithful, possibly even abusive, or maybe they just fought a lot. It's hard to tell. All I do know is that Angela did call the police on her husband a couple times. Oh, that's not good. Yeah. Um, And by 2006, she filed for divorce and requested full custody of her daughter. Good for her. Yep. Her husband's like, sure, didn't contest the divorce. He agreed to relinquish his parental rights. He wasn't really interested in being a dad. He just married her because he felt it was the right thing to do. Oh, God. Okay, great. With her divorce finalized, Angela moves back to Phoenix City. Now she's a single mom, and she's still trying to pursue this career in medicine, although she realizes she realizes she may not be able to be a doctor, but at least she can go to school to be a nurse, something like that. And she starts taking part-time classes. Um, 
She relies a lot on the help of her family and her church. She moved back to Alabama to be closer to her family. She starts getting uh, reacquainted and starts becoming more active again in the local Mormon church. And that's where she becomes reacquainted with Richie Wilder. The years since high school have been really kind to Richie. He had grown into an outgoing, funny, smart, motivated, and pretty darn attractive young man. Uh, As they began to casually date, Angela also reconnected with her old high school boyfriend, Christopher Jackson. But despite her still kind of having feelings for Christopher, she ended up not pursuing anything with him when she found out that he was still kind of floating through life. He hadn't graduated high school and he was unemployed living with his mom. Oh, great. Okay. Yeah. So while she thought he was a great guy, it was just one of those things that she's a single mom. She she needs somebody who can provide a better life for her and her daughter and who can support her dreams of going back to school and becoming a nurse. And the guy that could support those dreams of her was Richie Wilder. He also had big dreams. He wanted a large family. He wanted to move ahead in his career. And he really liked Angela. He told her that he loved her and that he would love to marry her. And also he loved her daughter and he asked her to allow him to fully adopt her daughter once they were married. Which is always good. Right. Always great. So Richie and Angela get married in a temple wedding in 2009, early 2009. Um, Later that year, they announced that, hey, Richie's going to join the Air Force. And after his basic training is complete, they're going to move to Minot, North Dakota, because Richie will be assigned to that Air Force base. According to friends and family, Angela was kind of nervous about the move. After all, like North Dakota is freezing and Alabama's not. So there's that whole like getting used to weather change. Coming from the south to like the northern Midwest has got to be a big shock. Mm -hmm. Because I know people that just come to Pennsylvania from the south and they're freezing their asses off. Um, When record lows in Minnesota can be like negative 50 almost it's you know pretty bad exactly exactly so the other reason she was a little nervous about the move was because she knew how much she relied on her family and and her church as her support system but at the same time because she was like the kid of a military family she realized that you know this is part of the thing of being a military spouse is moving around and supporting your spouse as they have various assignments and she knew that serving at Minot Air Force Base could be really good for Richie's career. So she agreed to move with him. Uh, shortly after the Wilders moved into base housing in Minot, she discovers that she's pregnant, which is absolutely fantastic for both her and Richie because they want to keep growing their family. But things grew darker as her spring 2011 due date approached and Richie settled into his assignment on base. According to Angela's sister, Crystal, quote, Richie joined the Air Force to provide for his new family. And that's when the happy days turned bad. I thought it was after Fonzie jumped the shark. (laughs) Touche. Touche. Crystal went on to say, there's a saying in the military life that is something to the effect of the military will change a man for better or for worse. For Richie, it was definitely for the worse. He became disconnected, demanding and abusive. That's horrible. Yes, it was horrible. Richie was basically horrible, especially during Angela's pregnancy. He would complain that she was gaining weight and constantly compare her to other women, you know, who weren't pregnant, Richie. Oh, my God. Uh, Great. I feel really bad for her because 
I, I know this situation where you just keep picking the wrong people and the same things mm-hmm. happen over and over again, relationships. Yep. And that's what seems to be happening for her. So, oh God. Okay. Yeah. I feel this one in my soul. Yeah. Yeah. Like he, even though they joined the, the local Mormon church and they moved to Minot, he tells her that unless she can look put together and kempt, he doesn't want her accompanying him to worship or events because she just looks too like slovenly. Again, she's pretty- what an asshole. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And then he also starts doing what I consider like the telltale cheater behaviors. You know, like having hushed phone conversations that suddenly end, like when you walk in the room, Mm -hmm. you end up staying out later than you say you're going to, but you never really give an explanation, that kind of thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So he starts doing that. In March of 2011, Angela finally gives birth to a happy baby boy, and her relationship with Richie grows happy and loving again. But by June, Richie's controlling dickish behavior returns, and this kind of downward spirals Angela a little bit. Uh, She grows really anxious. She starts feeling depressed and really isolated. It makes a lot of sense. I'm sure she was also dealing with like postpartum and just struggling in a new place and not really having that support system that she was used to. Then out of the blue in October 2011, Richie files for divorce and he requests custody of both the kids, alleging that Angela has been abusing her daughter since the beginning of their marriage. Oh, God. Get the frack off it. Come on. Mm-hmm. I'm not fracking around here, Eden. This is what he did. No. He's going to frack up her whole life. He is indeed. And what he requests in order for him to withdraw the divorce filings is for Angela to agree to counseling, take like a nurturing program for like becoming a better mother, and also take medication for her quote unquote anger issues. Okay. I'm I'm angry. Uh- yeah. <laughs> Just wait, you'll get angrier. <laughs> it's like it's projection, like of like everything that he is, he's putting onto her. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's so shitty. And I, he's just made my shit list, and I'm really mad now. So please continue. Yeah. Um, well, you'll probably feel vindicated then to know that everything that I read about her friends and family talking about her as a mother. Um, reinforced the idea that they were all super surprised by these allegations because it was so out of character for Angela. Everyone said she was extremely devoted to her children and she never really used physical discipline. Like she didn't even spank her kids when they were naughty. She would, you know, use her words and like do timeouts as like her parenting discipline method. So people were really surprised about these allegations. So Richie withdraws the divorce filing. Angela comes home. It's Christmas time. They reconcile. But he's back in divorce court in January of 2012, alleging this time that he wants to divorce Angela because she's become physically abusive towards him. What? Yeah. There is all of this reported. uh, There was an encounter or I would call it – I wouldn't even call it an encounter. I would call it an assault that happened at Christmas where basically – Angela asked Richie about all of these calls from a old girlfriend back in Alabama, and he basically fed her this weird story about how, like, he was trying to get revenge on this old girlfriend by making it seem like he was falling in love with her, and then he was going to break up with her so she knew how it felt. But it didn't mean anything because he was back with Angela now. And then they kind of started having a fight, and Richie, like, put her in a chokehold, not once but twice, and he put her in a chokehold until she passed out. Not once but twice. Yes. Um, and basically 
there was a lot of back and forth about why he did that. Like he did it because she got upset about this other woman and attacked him. She said that he just put her in a chokehold. Um, but when it came down to it, the physical evidence really does seem to show that Angela, who was smaller and not like a totally petite girl, but she was a smaller, smaller than Richie, um, had all of these bruisings. She had she took photographs of her like black eye, of her bruised ribs, the bruises around her neck from the chokeholds. And Richie even admitted, yes, he put her in a chokehold because he was quote unquote defending himself. Now, the divorce proceedings this time stuck, thankfully. Um, but it grew more and more confrontational every time Richie and Angela saw each other or had to go to court. Each spouse accused each other of abuse and infidelity. While most of the evidence supported Angela's side, it was still sort of just decreed as a no-fault divorce in, uh, well, in May of 2012. However, afterwards, Richie ends up getting court-martialed and discharged from the Air Force because in the court civilian court proceedings, the allegations of his physical be- uh, abusive behavior came to light and it triggered a court-martial. So he got kicked out of the Air Force. Good. At least there's something that happened to him. Yes. Yeah. Now, Angela and Richie are divorced. They're going their separate ways. However, they still share two children. So that becomes the next battleground for them. They are constantly fighting over the custody agreement. Initially, it was agreed that each parent would get the two kids one week, then switch off the next week. So Richie would have the kids one week, Angela would have the next week, back and forth. Richie also agreed to pay a small amount of child support. However, they would fight about everything else. They would fight about missed drop-off times, who got which toys, even like what blankets went to which house, just anything under the sun they could fight about. Finally, the court stepped in and ordered that Richie and Angela only communicate via email and that they only see each other when they exchange the children. The exchange for the children must be in a public place each week. Yep. I'm very well aware of of that happening. (laughs) Yep. Yep. So as they go through these legal dust-ups for the rest of 2012 and 2013, Richie and Angela kind of move on with their lives. They start new relationships. Uh, by the end of 2013, Richie has met and married a petite, uh, a petite elementary school teacher named Cynthia. And on a trip home to Alabama, Angela reconnects once again with her old high school boyfriend, Christopher Jackson. Now, Christopher agrees to move with her back to Minot and soon they're engaged and they're expe- they have a child of their own together, a son who's born in late 2013. Oh my God. Wow. Okay. Yeah. It's interesting too, because reading about like Christopher at that point, like he finally kind of had his life together and he's like, yeah, I'll move to Minot. I'll get a job support you. I can work like evenings and nights so that you can be at the kids in the day. And then I can watch them during the day and then you can work, you know, you can watch the kids at night when I'm at work and we'll just do this trade off. So well, that's good. Yeah. He, he, he kind of grew into being a stand up guy. Good. Because you said his name was Christopher and <laughs> you know how we feel about Christopher's when it comes to true crime. Well, that's why I called him Christopher throughout instead of Chris. <laughs> that's yeah. Okay. <laughs> I see what you did there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, over the next two years, Richie and Angela continue to bicker. But life seems to be getting better for both of them. Richie finds a new job as a certified nursing assistant, and Angela nears the completion of her nursing degree. That is, until the early morning of November 13th, 2015. Christopher is waiting for Angela to pick him up from his overnight shift at the local Walmart where he works. 
They usually texted and chatted through his breaks and lunch hour when he was at work, but he hadn't been able to reach her when he called her on his last break around 5 a.m., and she still wasn't responding when he called her when she didn't show up at 7 a.m. to take him home. So he figured, you know what, she's been exhausted. She probably overslept. Or maybe she knocked her phone off the bed. She'd done that before. It's not a big deal. He'll call a cab. It's a seven-minute cab ride home, whatever. I knew this wasn't going to happen, but I was so hoping for a happy ending for Angela. (laughs) I knew it wasn't, and I knew it was stupid, but yeah, here we are. Did you forget what show we're talking on? Right, I know. No one can be happy. (laughs) No one can be happy. So Christopher gets home. The cab actually overshoots their house and misses, so he like just drops him off in the neighbor's driveway. And that's when Christopher notices that their bedroom window is still dark. So he's going to be a little cheeky and he's going to mess with her. So he sneaks up to the window and he raps on it, hoping to like wake Angela up. He waits a minute or two and he gets no response. So he heads around to the front door. He notices, oh, Angela's car is still in the driveway. And then he sees that the front door is wide open. And it's weird because it's a really cold November morning. And Angela never did things like that. She always had the, the house closed, the doors locked. As he walks closer to the house, he sees that the door frame is actually damaged especially around the lock. It almost looks like somebody forced the door open. So he calls out for Angela and he doesn't get a response. He kind of stands there for a minute, kind of terrified of going into the house because he doesn't know what he's going to find. So he calls 911 and stays on the phone with 911 as he waits for the police to arrive. The police arrive and they enter the house. They quickly locate Christopher and Angela's toddler son who was asleep in his bed. But behind the locked door of the master bedroom, police discover Angela. She's dead, stabbed more than 40 times, and laying in a pool of blood. That's a lot of rage. Yes, that's a lot of rage. The bedclothes and the bed clearly show that she fought against a violent attack. Her later autopsy revealed that the knife wounds were primarily to her face, neck, and upper body, some as deep as four inches. So it definitely seems like an attack motivated by rage, as you said, Eden. The examiners were also able to recover some tissue, presumably from her attacker under her fingernails as well. Good. So she fought back. Yes, she fought. She fought. See, whoever did this had to absolutely hate, hate, hate her because stabbing is so personal and it Mm -hmm. was over 40 times. So that's, like I said, a lot of fucking rage. Yeah. So I know who my top suspect is. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, as the forensic team arrives to process the scene, the lead investigators bring Christopher down to the police station for questioning. During the interview, he states that he received a concerning text message from Angela around 11 p.m. She said she was scared because she heard some odd sounds coming from outside the front door, like someone was like jiggling the door handle or trying to get in. He said that he wasn't especially concerned about this because Angela tended to get anxious when he worked overnight shifts. Like she had mentioned that she had seen a car she thought was following her one night and he kind of dismissed it. And he also knew that his next door neighbors were really loud when they came and went, especially getting in and out of their car. So he was like, maybe you just heard the neighbors, honey. I'm sure everything's fine. Just check that the doors are locked and I will call you uh, on my break a little after midnight. I am going to start by saying I do not blame him at all. It's not his fault. Mm -hmm. But he just became the husband in every 
scary story and horror movie when right. you know she sees a ghost or someone's following her and is just like oh honey it was just the wind you're fine you're fine don't worry <laughs> about it i know you get anxious just calm down take a pill it's okay exactly exactly anxious woman <laughs> that's every day <laughs> exactly uh, christopher then tells police that he did talk to angela on his first break a little after midnight she said she hadn't heard any more strange noises and was planning to study for a little bit for an upcoming exam before she tried to sleep he then talked to her at around 2 a.m when he was having lunch uh, she told him how tired she was and he encouraged her to get some sleep and that he would call her on his last break around 5 a.m that was the last time he heard from angela his next calls and text messages went unanswered when the detectives asked if Angela had any enemies or acrimonious relationships, he immediately brings up her ex-husband, Richie, and the troubled end of their marriage and their continued fight over child custody. This sentiment is echoed by Angela's sister and her parents when the police call to inform them of her death. So everyone's like, it's Richie. Police are like, well, we'll have to talk to him. So that's just what they do. They bring Richie in for an interview. He seems super calm. And then all of a sudden he starts acting kind of nervous, like shaking his legs, giving these rambling answers that are really generic, not specific in any way, shape, or form. And what triggers it is the lead detective asks if he knows why he was brought to the station. The detectives ask him if he had heard about an incident at his ex-wife's house, which coincidentally is across the street from the elementary school where his new wife works as a teacher and where his oldest daughter attends. Hmm. Yeah. Richie says he called his daughter called him from school after seeing police tape cordoning off her mother's house. Richie said that he looked into it and let his daughter know what was going on. But he didn't bother to try to contact Angela or Christopher. In fact, he hadn't called anyone at all to follow up. Which is just like, I mean, even if really you did. don't, really? even if you hate your ex-wife, yeah, you would still, a normal person would still want to be sure that she was okay. Exactly. Uh, when investigators ask where Richie was the night before, he said that he worked till 11 and then he went straight home. His wife, Cynthia, confirmed his story. She said they had been home all night together after he got home from his shift as a certified nursing assistant. When they asked Richie about the fresh scratch marks on his face and neck, he said he got them from wrestling with his four-year-old son. Oh, I'm sure. Totally normal to get face scratches from wrestling with a four-year-old. Yes. Increasingly suspicious of Richie, the detectives ask to collect a DNA sample, which he agrees to, and then they release him. Then the detectives immediately go and get a search warrant for his home and automobiles. <laughs> As they should. As they should. I feel like this is the story of the police doing everything right for once. So, Which is good. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so they search his home. It doesn't turn up anything. But police do find this odd reddish like, smudge in uh, Richie's wife Cynthia's SUV, which is otherwise immaculately clean. So they collect a sample of the smudge and set it off for testing. Over the next few weeks, detectives continue to dig into Richie Wilder's story. What they find is pretty goddamn scandalous, if I do say so myself. And it seems to throw Richie's credibility right under the downtown Minot bus. It turns out Richie was having affairs with at least three other women, including two coworkers. I'm not surprised. <laughs> And here's the crazy part, right? So he has a girlfriend back home in Alabama that he's still talking to. And he's making plans to go visit with her, meet up with her in Las Vegas in a couple months. He's sleeping with two women that he works with. One is just a physical affair. 
The woman tells police, she, he, he's just, you know, he's richy. He's a good lad. Like, whatever. It's not serious. The other woman, though, is like, oh, no, we're shopping for apartments together. Oh. And I'm going to have his baby. I thought I was pregnant last month and the month before, but it turns out I wasn't. You're certain his name is not Devin, right? Right? I was like, what? This is my ex. <laughs> Meanwhile, he's like telling Cynthia, like his wife, like, oh, these women at work, like they're going to they're gonna pay me for my sperm if I donate it, blah, blah, blah. And oh, this uh, this woman, Jennifer, we're actually, I'm going to get an apartment with her because we're going to start a business together. And I was like, wow, way to cover your tracks in case you accidentally knock one of these women up, dude. Like, right. Nuts. So police find this out. They're like, okay, he's clearly not trustworthy. He has no problem lying to people. And then they find out in late November that he was fired from his job as a certified nursing assistant because he had a physical altercation with an elderly male patient. He basically gets mad and pushes this guy up against a wall and like pins him there by his throat. Yeah. If you have that much of a temper, CNA work is not for you. Right. Right. I was like, oh. So the police are like, all right, well, this this isn't looking good for Richie. And then in mid-December 2015, they receive the final pieces of evidence they need. The reddish-brown smudge they find in the SUV was blood, and it matches Angela's DNA. And the tissue under Angela's nails is also a match to Richie's DNA sample. They immediately arrest Richie on December 18th. The criminal trial proceeds normally, that is, until March of 2016, uh, when Richie's lawyers contact the police department and the district attorney's office. Richie was ready to tell the investigators everything that actually happened the night Angela died. According to Richie, he wasn't the killer. The actual killer was her fiancé, Christopher Jackson. Now, Richie said a few weeks before Angela's murder... Christopher had told him that he thought Angela was cheating on him and that he wanted Richie's help to catch her in the act. If they worked together, they could get proof that Angela was a cheater and that would help both men get sole custody of their children. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute here. Yeah. Does he have any prior relationship with Christopher that would even make anyone think that Christopher would buddy up to him like that? No, the only interaction the men have is when they exchange the kids because it got to the point where Angela and Richie couldn't even do the exchange of children face to face. Christopher would step in and do it. Makes sense. Yeah. So that's the only and that's actually Richie said that it was when they were exchanging the kids that they had this conversation. Like where they were waiting for the kids to get out of school, basically. Because that's normal. Mm -hmm, Totally. Talking to your wife's ex-husband about that. Mm hmm. Sure. I guess he was thinking like he's concerned that Angela's cheating on him. So like they're not their relationship is rocky. So maybe that'll work. Anyway, as Richie's story goes on, he agrees to help Christopher. And then Christopher gives him a burner cell phone so that he can contact Richie, quote unquote, when the time is right. By Christopher, he means Walmart. (laughs) Basically. One night. Sorry. Then on the night of Angela's murder, Christopher calls the burner phone, tells Richie to come pick him up at the Walmart loading dock so they can go back to the house and catch Angela with her lover because he's sure the guy's there. When they arrive, they go straight to the bedroom where it looks like Angela's in bed with somebody. Richie says that Christopher pulls back the cover and it turns out it wasn't another person. It was a body pillow. 
But that doesn't stop Christopher from viciously attacking Angela. Now, after the attack, Richie goes to check her vitals, and that's when she scratches her face, his face. Apparently, he was trying to revive her or see if she had a pulse, and that's when she starts to push at him and scratch his face. And as she lies dying in his arms, she tells Richie that she loves him one last time. <laughs> Throwing up. Okay, that's the worst story that I've ever heard in my life from anyone, Richie. Come on. <laughs> right? Like, he's just going to stand there while, like, another guy, like, mur- like viciously attacks somebody? Like, oh, yeah, sure, I didn't like her either, but do-do-do-do-do. So his thing is basically this guy that I barely know who's now married to my ex-wife that I hate called me after giving me a burner cell. We went over there, and then he was like... I told you no more body pillows and then <laughs> kills her. No. And then he yes. was the good guy the whole time trying to check her pulse or revive her. No, no way in hell. Thank you. And then she tells him that she still loves him. <laughs> like, yeah. That's the worst part of it. That part I just couldn't even repeat. Cause I will vomit. Like how, how delusional and self-centered you have to be to think that that's a believable story. He's a great, a narcissist. There's yes. no way. Oh my yeah. God. Uh, and that's pretty much the, uh, the reaction of the detectives too they're like really i wouldn't be able to keep a straight face as one of those detectives well the one detective the detective who did not like him what bit obvious for obvious reasons he had actually as part of his wrap-up investigation just to cover all of his bases leading up to to the court date had reviewed all of the security footage from walmart that night that angela died gotta cover your bases always check out the husband yeah and Walmart has cameras everywhere. I don't know why Richie didn't realize that, but like, whatevs. So the lead detective could clearly account for literally every single minute of Christopher Jackson's shift that night. He sees him enter Walmart. He sees him go out on his smoke breaks. He sees him walk back in within like five minutes. There is no way that he could have possibly left the store that night. Even that too. But then also with the uh, the phone call to the burner cell, it might have been a burner cell that Richard was using, but was it necessarily a burner cell that Christopher was using? Did they, you know, check phone records would obviously show who he called. Exactly. And they did and check. I the phone. calling Richard. Exactly. And they previously checked Christopher's phone records because he said he had called Angela multiple times that night. So the lead detective relishes the moment. and He just tells Richie just that. Actually, we have proof that Rich, that Christopher was at Walmart all night. Immediately, Richie clams up and refuses to answer any more questions. <laughs> probably the first smart thing he's done. <laughs> and sadly, Eden, it'll probably be the last smart thing he does. Because Not sadly, I'm enjoying him. <laughs> <laughs> he decides, you know what? I, I, I can do this. I can do this. Richie is one of those narcissists who thinks he's the smartest guy in the room, and he's really not. So he tries to paint himself again as an innocent bystander at Angela's murder. Later in 2016. He again contacts the police with a new story about how he was lured to Angela's house and then held at gunpoint while these two guys that Christopher Jackson hired killed Angela and framed him for the murder. Oh, my God. Just shut up. (laughs) Here's the nuts part, though. He even supplies this supposed confession from a man who had been his former cellmate who is now out on uh, parole. What did it say? I did it. Signed, not Richard. Uh, That's the best part. So he... 
said he'd done a psychological survey and answered yes or no questions. So it's like, did you did you kill Angela Wilder? Yes or no? Circled. Did Richie Wilder have anything to do with Angela Wilder's murder? Wilder's murder? No. Circle. It was like one of those. Do you like me? Circle yes yeah, or no. Yeah, circle yes or no. Do you want to go to prom? <laughs> and then at the top, the cellmate's name was like his signature was there. And then like literally the the cops looked at it and they're like. It's so shaky. It's clearly traced. Like, what are we doing with ourselves, Richie? Oh, my God. Uh, these claims totally fell apart, obviously. And even despite some other machinations where, like, Richie was trying to get other guys who he had known in prison to, like, murder this former cellmate of his, make it look like a suicide so he could pen, pin Angela's murder on, the guy who kills himself. All these crazy plans Richie tried to, like, make happen. And the whole time... The police are listening to his phone calls from jail, being like, Richie, come on, man. Like, no, it's clear you did this. And then to top it all off, you have Richie's wife, Cynthia, who has been maintaining this entire time that she was with him the whole night, even though her husband says he would lure to her house and held at gunpoint. Yeah. And she just stands by these statements. However, stand by your man. She's got to. It's her only choice. <laughs> However, Richie is obviously. Guilty of sin, and he is convicted of Angela's murder and sentenced to life in prison without parole in the spring of 2017. But Eden, thank God, the story doesn't stop there. Oh no! Okay, <laughs> here we go. Now the lead detectives always thought it was sort of odd that Cynthia continued to lie for Richie and just say, "Yep, he was at home the whole time." They also thought it was odd that it was her car that Angela's blood was found in. That is true. And during their interview, could have borrowed it though, but it is seeming a little bit more like she had something to do with it too. And that was the other part. When they interviewed her, not only did she refuse to budge from the idea that Richie was at home with her all night, but she was very mean and angry whenever they brought up Angela. Like she refused to call her by her name. She would call her that woman or that bitch and just had this deep burning hatred for Angela, which is really odd considering it's like her ex-husband or it's her husband's ex-wife. And she's only really been married to Richie for like a couple of years at this point. They share custody with kids. They're co-parenting these kids together. Yet she has this deep dislike and vehement anger towards Angela. Even after That's she's so dead. weird. Yeah. Is it, did she actually ever meet Angela before this or? No, they, like, she knows, she knows her through Richie. Everything Richie told her about Angela is what Cynthia knows. Like, and I'm oh sure she's, she had seen her, you know, when they exchanged the kids, that sort of thing. The other crazy thing is that Cynthia refuses to believe the detectives when they show her evidence of all of Richie's extramarital affairs. She's like, nope, I won't believe you. And he's like, we have the text mess text messages right here where he's declaring his love for these women. She's like, I won't believe you unless you have a tape. I can see a tape of Richie having sex with them because that's the only way I know he would cheat on me. She's just as deluded as he is. Like they are yeah, a match made really in hell. Bad. Maybe they deserve each other. Yes. <laughs> Now, despite all of the stories that Richie likes to spin about what really happened to Angela, he never implicates Cynthia, though. He never says that she had anything to do with it. She's never part of the story whatsoever. But the detectives were like, it's so weird, though. I don't know. Then in March of 2017, they're contacted by a man named Matt Walters. Now, Matt had lived in Minot for several years before relocating out of state. And he had been a bartender and had known Cynthia before she married Richie. 
In fact, he and Cynthia had a casual friends with benefits fling that she had always would hope that it would turn into an actual relationship. But Matt was like, no, it's cool. Let's just stay friends. And then after their fling kind of fizzled out, she started dating and married Richie. Now, with Richie locked away in the slammer, Cynthia was pretty darn lonely. So she reached out to Matt on Facebook. And Matt started to become really concerned by just some of the cryptic messages she was sending him. It seemed like she would allude to Angela's murder and that she knew way more than she was telling the police. Matt contacts the police about this. He's like, hey, you know, I think she might know something more. The police eventually persuade him to become an informant. And they arrange for him to visit Minot. And they wire his car up so that they can listen to any conversations that he might have with Cynthia. When he gets to Minot, he calls Cynthia up and says, hey, let's go out for a drink. I'll come pick you up. And they go out. After an end in the town, Matt offers to drive Cynthia home. And as they're sitting in her driveway at 2 a.m., Cynthia suddenly brings up Richie and how angry she is at him. And Matt says, angry about what he did? And she's like, no, I'm proud, for, proud of him for what he did. I'm pissed that he got, quote unquote, sloppy and impatient. Because, quote, we had this thing planned for like two years. Oh, my God. Right? Gold. Gold. To Matt's horror, she confesses that she helped Richie stalk Angela, learn her routine, and learn Christopher's routine so they knew when he would be out of the house. And according to Cynthia's confession in the car, on the night Richie killed Angela, he got home and he was covered in blood. And he said, "Uh, things didn't go the way they were supposed to. It got sloppy. After Cynthia yelled at him, she helped him clean himself up, get rid of the bloody clothes, and clean out the car. They had thought they had gotten away with it. And after that, they had sex to celebrate. Gross. Oh. Super gross. Okay. Like, I, I hate these people. I do not like them. Yeah, I don't like them at all. It's like two immensely angry, damaged people found each other and destroyed lives. Yes. It's sad that they're the only people out there that can find love. I know. I know. You got to be crazy in love. Accent on the crazy. Now, Matt manages to like maintain his composure somehow. And he presses her about more details. And he's like, well, well, so you're mad about Richie for being sloppy. And he's like, do you mean like the physical evidence? He's like, I always thought it was dumb to use a knife. And she's like, oh, well, he wasn't supposed to use a knife. He said he had a gun, but the gun wouldn't work. So we ended up using the knife. And then she goes on to say about the physical evidence, a.k.a. the DNA that they found under Angela's fingernails. Cynthia says to Matt, quote, if it was me, I would have fucking gone back and cut her fucking fingers off. I would have burned them. Oh, wow. I would have the house on fire. So he's really good at this. Yes. Yes. Um, And then she says, I could go to jail for a very long time because I helped him. I would have done it right. So clearly she's like hates Angela is crazy. Like the fact that she was like, and this is something that Matt said in a review that like really like completely made him like uh, question her humanity was that there was a toddler in the house at the time. He's like, so you would just burn down this house with this toddler in it. Like no thoughts to that. It's like just truly horrifying. Meanwhile, the detectives on the other end of this wire are listening to it and are like, we got her. We totally got her. And on May 19th, 2017, A little more than two weeks after Richie was sentenced to life in prison, Cynthia was arrested for conspiracy to commit murder. Good. Now, with that confession, which is, you know, recorded, 
it's pretty clear-cut case. There's not a whole lot of maneuvering that her defense lawyer can do. So the DA offers Cynthia a 20-year plea, a 20 year plea deal if she pleads guilty. She refuses. She wants to go to trial. And this 100% backfires. Yeah, good luck, bitch. <laughs> Basically, I forget what it's called, like an Austin, not an Austin, Austin, whatever. It's like when you... um. When your lawyer is like, there's two, it's like a, a plea you can enter when like you admit that there's enough proof to show that you've done this crime, but you are not admitting guilt to it. No contest. Mm, okay. You're not contesting the sentence against you, but you're still not admitting your guilt. Yes. So that's what she ends up doing. And then, so it goes to a sentencing judge without a jury trial. Now, the DA is relatively reasonable. They're like, listen, we're going to do like the the average sentencing for these crimes. You know, we'll do a 30-year sentence with time served. That's what we recommend for her sentencing. However- Wow, they're even giving her time served. Yes. That's, wow, that's generous. The sentencing judge, however, was not so lenient. She was absolutely horrified by the way that Cynthia talked about Angela, the fact that she had no remorse, that she would roll her eyes anytime they would talk about Angela in court and how she had basically taken this woman from her kids. And the judge comes down with life imprisonment without parole, the exact same sentence that Richie got for Angela's Good, actual murder. Even if she didn't kill Angela, she'd been planning this with her husband for two years. That's cold. That's calculated. Mm-hmm. She's the type of person that would absolutely do this again. hundred percent. She needs to be off the streets. Yeah, hundred percent. So that is the very long, twisting, and sad story of the murder of Angela Wilder. That was fucked up beyond belief. Mm-hmm. Or I'm sorry, uh, fracked up. There we go. <laughs> yeah, I just, uh, I feel so bad for, you know, the kids who lost, like, basically their parents. And then, you know, for, for Christopher, like, there's this, like, part in the uh, book that I used for one of my sources where he's talking about how, you know, it didn't matter that he had to move to North Dakota. He finally got to be with Angela after all the years, like his biggest regret in life was like letting her go and not being yeah, with it her. Seems like they both still really loved each other. Yeah. So now it's like, it, he's just destroyed from this. So I, I just like feel for him so much. That's really sad. Yeah. And he finally got his life together too. Mm-hmm. And Oh God. Yeah. So my sources were USA Today, an episode of Dateline called Prairie Confidential, which I will say was really condescending, but I got through it. Um, <laughs> a article from KFYRTV.com and a great little book about the case called Wilder Intentions, Love, Lies, and Murder in North Dakota by CJ Wynn. It's available on Kindle Unlimited if you're interested, gang. Very nice. That was a great story, Nicole. Thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed it, Eden. I very much did, although I'm I'm just filled with rage. I know. I know. Me too. That's been my week. Filled with rage and sadness. Oh, God. Time to have some cookies. Yes. Speaking of cookies, you want to take a short break, and then we can return for your spooky haunted place story and also some weird news to lift our spirits a bit? Absolutely, because speaking of cookies, I already tossed mine. With that whole dying declaration of love thing. (laughs) You need more cookies. I do. All right, guys, we will be back. And we're back. And I do have a news story for you. It's not the one I planned, but I found it this week and thought it was hilarious. Nice, nice. 
So my news story this week comes from Mandatory.com, and the headline is, Meanwhile in Florida, homophobic (laughs) man shoots doctor for making him orgasm during prostate exam. Just what the fuck? I know, and I love that it starts with, meanwhile in Florida. Like, yep, you know, you get it. Exactly, yep. Huh, okay. So prostate exam, huh? Yep, the article goes on to say, Nobody likes going to the doctor, especially for prostate exams, but we don't hold that against the doctor them- doctors themselves. Then again, we're not from Florida. And one man from the Sunshine State didn't like how his appointment with an MD went down and shot him. Let's back up. The patient's name is Milo Johansson, and he's a car salesman in Jacksonville. The dude's beef? His doctor, Dr. Smith, gave him an orgasm during a prostate exam. Apparently, this isn't unusual. Quote, the prostate is like a male G-spot and it carries semen. It is very sensitive, so when it is touched and massaged, you get an orgasm with almost no effort. End quote, Dr. Smith explained. Johansson is said to be deeply homophobic, though, so he must have felt unmoored when he accidentally shot his wad during the exam. Oh my god. I understand that Milo was shocked by what happened to him. An orgasm meant something sexual had taken place between us, and he became very aggressive, Dr. Smith said. Johansson ordered the doctor to apologize and say no homo, a phrase the doctor was unfamiliar with. <laughs> no homo, bro. No homo. No homo. No homo. <laughs> Just remember to start all your prostate exams with no homo, and you're good. Um, he tried to calm Johansson down, but the homophobe pulled his gun and shot Dr. Smith twice in the chest at close range. The doctor has fully recovered, but Johansson has not been seen since. Holy shit. What we don't get, yeah. What we don't get is why Johansson didn't just appreciate that his procedure was not only painless, but pleasurable. What he should have done instead of shooting the doctor is gone home and showed his girlfriend how to do this his new favorite move. I agree with that article. You had that much fun at the doctor? Show your girlfriend how to do it. <laughs> rough, rough. Yeah, what the fuck? I'm glad the doctor's better. I know, that's kind of crazy. It's So here's the thing. If you're going to have that much of an issue with like a doctor, like why don't you go to like a female doctor? Yeah, have them shove their fingers up your ass. I know, isn't that already a little bit gay? Like I have to go to the doc- proctologist and they're going to shove it, their finger up my ass. Yeah, I think that he'd be too homophobic for that in general, not just because he orgasmed. I don't know. That's weird. Weird. But yeah, that's my article, and I'm sticking to it. All right. Well, I mean, it was definitely meanwhile in Florida. That's for damn sure. Absolutely. So I got the, you know, the true crime in there to go along with our podcast, (laughs) and it was weird and funny. Because we can all laugh about it since the doctor's okay, guys. It's fine. Even though he got shot twice in the chest, so I'm wondering how he pulled that one off. I mean, I feel like Johansson's gun may have been a little itty-bitty gun. Maybe. Well, he's obviously got an itty-bitty pecker, so. (laughs) Anyway, are you ready for some hauntings? I'm ready. Let's get our ghosty on. Perfect. My story for this week takes place in Dickinson, North Dakota. I almost said North Carolina, guys, but that's the wrong state. Dickinson is in Stark County, which is in the southwest portion of the state. It has a population of 23,000 or 35,000, depending on the source, according to Wikipedia, which is weird, but I'm not too worried about the fact-checking on that part. (laughs) 
The confusion might be due to the fact that there was a major population boom in the area in recent years. The growth added some much needed diversity to the city, but it also brought in crime as well as contributed to homelessness as well. Mm, Gotcha. It's the principal city of the Dickinson micropolitan area, which thank you, Nicole, for telling us what that meant on another episode because I had never heard of it before. (laughs) The city was named for W.S. Dickinson, who was from New York, and Wikipedia didn't even bother to tell me why he has a town named after him. So I guess I'll just do it for myself. Wikipedia, thank you very much. Well, guess what, guys? I did just that. And all I was really able to find out that would link him to this town at all is that he worked for the Northern Pacific Railroad and was in charge of some of the marketing about building of towns in North Dakota. Interesting, because I really would have thought that it was maybe named after like Charles Dickens or. Yeah, but like... no, it's named after this guy because I guess he might have like done something with founding the town. Or he was like running out. Railroad. Like I could see like some dude like running out of names. It's like, okay, we can't call it this. Is there a Fargo? There's a Fargo. Why was there Fargo? Dickinson. Dickens. Dickinson works. Uh-huh. Yeah. Dickinson's a pretty common town name. So uh, as far as things to do, and Nicole, you would love this if we could take a time machine and bring childhood you there. They have something called the Badlands Dinosaur Museum, which has a bunch of fossils and other cool dinosaur related things. Ooh, yes. Yes. My inner child would love to see that. And it's even home to a complete Triceratops skull, which was actually found just outside of Dickinson. Oh, that's awesome. They're, yeah, they're one of my that's favorites. Really cool. They're one of my favorites. There actually seem to be a lot of museums and parks in Dickinson and not a lot else, but it is close to a lot of other activities, such as some national parks and the Enchanted Highway Nicole told us about last time. Oh, nice. Nice. I'm glad yes. it's, it's along the Enchanted Highway. It is. All in all, it seems like a cute little town, but telling you about this town wouldn't be complete without mentioning the subject of my story, as well as my nightmares. St. Joseph Hospital. Oh, no. It's a hospital. I instantly am like, "Mm," on guard about hospitals. They're creepy. They really are. So St. Joseph Hospital was a tough topic to research as far as history goes, but I could not just disregard this place because it is super creepy. The only real historical information I could find on it was through its website, which is chialexiushealth.org, which is the new name for the hospital, CHI St. Alexius. Gotcha. Okay. So I can't imagine they'd want to brag about some of its darker history, that's for sure. No, mm-mm, not at all. So now this is a hospital run by the Catholic Church, and maybe it's just the Catholic school flashbacks, but that already creeps me out. It just has horror movie written all over it. I feel like there's precedent for that, though. I feel like we've encountered like children's homes, I think, and perhaps maybe one other medical we facility. Had a Catholic children's home. Yeah. Don't trust those Catholics as far as you can throw their rosaries. No, I guess so. It was built in 1911 by a man named Bishop Vincent Whirl, and his last name is spelled W-E-H-R-L-E. So I'm just assuming that's the correct pronunciation. I'm not sure. I mean, it sounds good to me. Me too. Apparently, back in June of 1910, the community had a meeting about building a hospital, and they came to Bishop Whirl with the idea. He was from Bismarck, which is roughly an hour and a half away. He agreed to raise the money that it would take to build this hospital or at least $60,000 of the $80,000 that they would need. The rest was up to the public. And just so everyone can get a better glimpse into how much this actually is and how much of an evil bitch inflation is, 
60000 in 1910 money would be about $1,657,981.82, and that's just his portion of it, as well as this being calculated from 1913 money, because that's as far back as these calculators, the three that I tried, would let me go. Wow. So it's probably even more than that, huh? Because like inflation oh, yeah. keeps, keeps going. All Absolutely. Right. So while the other $20,000 would be gained through private donations, the good bishop borrowed his portion at 7% interest. Also, if you're wondering how he had money at all being a bishop, the men of the Catholic Church do not need to take a vow of poverty like the women do. Because, you know, mm-hmm. patriarchy. Yep. Anyhow, he went ahead with this money and built the original building, which only had 40 rooms, so not at all what you think of when you think of a hospital. At this point, there was also no nuns to staff this place because, yes, Catholic hospital, your nurses are nuns. Feel safe? I don't. I was going to say, the nuns are going to come into this, huh? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You can't have a creepy Catholic hospital without a few nuns. Black garb flowing in the breeze. Or maybe white at that time. I'm not sure. But it's creepy either way. The black guard of nuns. (laughs) Mm -hmm. In 1912, he took a trip to Switzerland to procure said nuns. And for this, he met with the Sisters of Mercy of the Holy Cross, not to be confused with one of my favorite bands, the Sisters of Mercy. They're very (laughs) different guys. So according to the website, and I do quote, records state that the bishop's approach was like an assault in battle. He came, he spoke, he conquered. Direct quote from the website, guys. Wow. that's Not making this shit up. That makes me uncomfortable, to say the least. Yes. And you're also going to love this next part. In March of that same year, six nuns came to the hospital. Their names were Sister Lada, Sister Clementine, Sister Filiberta, Sister Ricardus, Sister Secundia, and Sister Oxentia. There we go. No sister, sister? All right. No. All right. No twisted sister either. <laughs> the saddest part about this now that I'm pretty sure they chose those names. Yeah. 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 So... Who are they to run a hospital when they clearly need one for themselves? So, continuing on, what do you expect to find in a hospital, Nicole? I mean, medicine and sick people, right? That's how it works? Yes, medicine and sick people, of course. Well, St. Joseph's had no medicine at all. The good sisters were expected to find a functioning hospital when they got there. But there wasn't an elevator, there wasn't medical equipment, nor a lab, nor an x-ray machine thing, no bells for the patients to ring, and not even electricity. Wow. I bet they felt duped, but what can they do about it because they're nuns? Exactly. And he was also only willing to pay them $8 a month for their services, which wasn't even livable back then. What? Well, I... <sighs> yeah. He's, he's not one of my favorite people. Mm-mm. Regardless, these sisters, who were probably pretty cool despite their awful names, carried on. I'm assuming they somehow got at least some of the equipment they needed before seeing their first patient the following month, but your guess is as good as mine. Like I said, it was a little difficult to track that information this week. So nine years later, as a wonderful gift from the Diocese of Bismarck, they received the hospital as a gift. Sounds nice, right? I mean, I guess... But considering the state they got, the hospital was in when they got there, I can't imagine a lot's changed in those nine years. Yeah, and it really just wasn't at all a nice thing because I'm sure this place was, like you said, still not big on the resources. And 
from this gift, which I did put in quotes, they also received the debt for the building, which was $68,000 at this point, which is more than the loan was for. So the good bishop wasn't doing a great job at paying off that loan, now was he? Uh, Did he borrow on top of that loan? Because that's what it sounds like. Yeah, that's possible too. So somehow, though, they did survive and they began adding on to the building in 1931, 1951, 1966, and yet again in 1983. Also in 1983, they changed the name to St. Joseph's Hospital and Health Center, which is just a little fancier than before. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. In February of 1987, they did transfer sponsorship over to the Catholic Health Initiatives, which is where the CHI in the current name comes from. Okay, that's good. Good. Kind of getting into a bigger network. Hopefully that'll take care of some of those resources and allow the hospital to keep growing, right? And it's a happy, happy ending and not a creepy place at all. Oh, not a creepy place at all. No. So after this, uh, they did add on once more in the year 2000. You've got to get some computers up in that bitch, mm-hmm, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. And in 2008, it became a critical access hospital, which I had to Google. Yeah, I don't know what that is. Yeah, I wasn't sure either. It means it's a program, uh, like it's just this program which helps with cost by the government, by government funding, from what I could tell. It seems like the hospital needs to be the only one within 35 miles, and there's other stipulations as well. But the website said it, quote, was designed to reduce the financial vulnerability of rural hospitals and improve access to health care by keeping essential services in rural communities, end quote. Gotcha. So the government kind of steps in, gives you a little bit of money to help make sure that you can stay up and running to support those people who have no other options within 35 miles. And maybe finally put in electricity. Or that elevator. Whatever. Let's let's yeah. live it up. I do know they have an elevator. That That's one thing I do know happened. Oh, good. Um, oh, good. So all this came from a website called ruralhealthinfo.org. So then in 2010... They purchased land for a new hospital building, which ground was broken for in 2012. That's right. The year everyone thought the world was going to end. (laughs) I actually set an alarm for that shit since I think it was supposed to happen at like 6, 12 p.m. Unless it was one of the other world endings. I can't keep up anymore. I do remember setting my phone. I can't keep up anymore. I was really looking forward to Y2K. Nothing. nothing. I still have those cans of beans in the basement. I did turn the power off (laughs) because it was fun. So they were renamed once again in 2014 as CHI St. Joseph's Health. They officially closed the doors of the original building to new patients on December 8th of that same year and began shipping the patients that were currently there to the new location. As of 2016, the name was changed to CHI Alexius Health Dickinson, and there are now 12 other locations throughout the state. Okay. All right. So I bet you're thinking, with the terrible start this place got, along with being a creepy-ass Catholic hospital, how can this place not be haunted, right? Well, it totally is, and I've got the dirt for you. (laughs) Excellent. First off, we all know just how creepy basements in a house are, right? Oh, yeah. I have a creepy-as-hell basement. Or, I mean, I guess anyone who lives above sea level knows how creepy basements are. Oh, that's a good point. When I was a kid, yes. When I was a kid, I would turn off the light and then race up the basement stair because it was just creepy. And that was a finished basement in a house, albeit a haunted one, but still. Now, imagine that this isn't a finished basement, but one in a hospital which is already creepy. Got your attention? 
good. Be prepared, because in this basement, there's reports from staff of disembodied laughing and the sound of someone running. No fucking thank you. Those are literally two of my least favorite things. If you you tell me next that they also hear children down there, I'm out. I'm just out. Exactly. Also, I feel really bad for the nurses and other staff at this hospital because the call bells will ring on their own. And I'm not talking about the rooms with patients in them where someone accidentally sat on the buzzer or something. I mean, unoccupied rooms. That's annoying. That's just rude ghosts. That's that's play. Oh, yeah. Very rude. That's crying wolf, you know. Oh, yes. There's also an elevator. See, I told you there was an elevator. Which leads down to the morgue that will go up and down completely on its own. I don't like that one bit either. Yeah, that's like the first step towards a haunted elevator. Next thing you know, it's going to be an elevator to hell. Pretty much, if it's not already. (laughs) Compare. (laughs) So now let's talk about the cafeteria for a minute. You think the cafeteria probably isn't that bad in a hospital, right? Why would it be? I mean, it's a a relatively bright, airy place, right? And people people like food. Food brings out happy feelings. I I don't think a cafeteria should be haunted. Exactly. It's where you eat when you visit a patient. But in this cafeteria, there's more disembodied voices. But this time it's moans and screams. Oh, my God. No fucking thank you once again. No, 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 no. I am here for that uh, pudding cup. Thank you very much. Not to be screamed at by some ghost. Okay. Exactly. So from my understanding, once a person stops working here, since it is owned by the Catholic Church and they don't like ghost talk, You are pretty much forbidden from talking about what goes on there and probably have to sign some sort of non-disclosure agreement. I was, however, able to find a story from someone who worked at this hospital, which I will tell you about now. Nice, nice. So there was a local farmer who had been a lifelong resident of the town of Dickinson, so everybody knew him. He was in his 70s, and his health wasn't the best, so he checked into the hospital. The person telling this story believed the man was in a room on the third floor. He was there for three days when he just put on all his clothes and told a nurse that he's had enough and he'd like to leave. The nurse who knew him personally, since everyone in town knew this guy, also knew him to be a stubborn old man. And she was like, "Okay, fine. Bye, Felicia. (laughs) So 10 minutes later, another nurse comes to her and says, I was just doing my rounds and checking on people and uh, the Mr. Farmer man just passed away. The first nurse couldn't believe it because she had just seen him and talked to him. But sure enough, when she went to check his room, he was lying in his bed dead. Ooh. Yeah. Creepy. A ghost who doesn't know they're a ghost. Ooh. Mm-hmm. So before wrapping up, I do have two more things that I want to talk about. Firstly, I saw a 2019 article that looks like there might be plans to turn this old hospital into a mental health hospital, which I just think is a recipe for even more haunting. So I kind of hope not, but we'll see. And then secondly, I'm wondering if they decided to move to a different building to avoid the hauntings. And if so, I'm wondering how they feel now, because guess what? The new building's haunted, too. What? Yep. It followed them? I guess. I mean, that's what you get for the, being Catholic nuns. No, I'm just kidding. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing I could find with this one was a story about a room on the third floor in the north side of the building. Hmm. Several employees reported seeing what looked like a person who had hanged themselves in the window. But when they checked the room, there was nothing there. 
That's so alarming. Like, I can't imagine being that employee being like, look, there's someone's like, and you run up there and it's like empty. Yeah. Really weird. But like several employees had the same story about that. Weird. So uh, what do you think, Nicole? It sounds like a good time to you. Uh, That's going to be a hard pass. I already don't like regular hospitals. Yeah. And I'm even less inclined to go to some, you know, turn of the century not the best when it was new hospital. And then the fact yeah. that like even the new like health like center is like questionably haunted. Like mm-mm. it's a fucking curse at this point. Yeah, exactly. It's a curse. It's not even a haunting. It's a curse. And I just I nope. Nope. I'm going to pass. I'm going to go find that haunted restaurant down the road where I can, you know, get some chocolate pudding and not get yelled at. Sure, there might be a fingerprint in my chocolate pudding, but I'm OK with that. Ah, oh, damn! Because I was just about to say you can you can get that pudding at the cafeteria. It's just going to be a little louder. <laughs> so my sources for this week were Wikipedia, chi saint alexiushealth.org, several articles from dickinson five eight six zero one dot com, hauntedplaces.org, onlyinyourstate.com, hauntedrooms.com, hot nine seven five fm.com, visitdickinson.com, and ruralhealthinfo.org. Nice. Thanks for that story, Eden. Yeah, I don't like haunted hospitals. That's unique having a haunted Catholic hospital. I don't think we've encountered that before. No. And uh, I had fun telling that one and doing the research. So hope you all enjoyed it. So I guess that brings us to the end of our stop in North Dakota. I think we are heading to Montana next. That's our next destination. I believe it's Montana. Yeah. Nice. Nice. If you have uh, any uh, suggestions or recommendations for places we should stop in Montana, feel free to let us know. You can reach out to us via email at roadsidehorrorshow at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Roadside Horror Show and Twitter at Roadside Horror. You can always stop by our website and check out uh, our other adventures, learn more about the show, catch up on past episodes. It is at Roadside Horror Show. Podbean.com. Also, please tell your friends. Please uh, rate and review us on whatever you use to listen to our podcast. We would really much appreciate it. As always, we'd like to thank E. Massey for our great intro and outro music and Yox Rocks Design for our logo. Until next time, gang. Creep, creep on, on, creeping dog. on. <laughs>